thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on FlowCombat.com. I'm Dan the Gumby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. The UFC was in Newark, New Jersey this past weekend. Colby Covington with the big decision victory over Robbie Lawler. We'll be talking about that fight and what is next for Colby Covington, as well as all of the news for the week in our Fastest Fight News segment. Plus, the UFC is heading to Uruguay this weekend for the very first time for a flyweight title fight between Valentina Shevchenko and Liz Carmouche. And we're talking to Liz Carmouche. Early on the episode, make sure you catch that interview, as well as our interview with Gregor Gillespie, who stops by to talk about his mentality when he gets ready for fights. And this is some truly interesting stuff, guys. I highly suggest checking out both these interviews. But before you do that, let me quickly mention to you guys that this episode is brought to you by ADK Fightwear. Go to ADKFightwear.com, use promo code TURTLE, T-U-R-T-L-E, all lowercase. You're going to get 20% off all of your grappling needs there. And let me tell you something. Their grappling gear is super high quality. I have their arm bars and stripes rash guard. It's a short sleeve rash guard with a U.S. flag on it, but it's got the the jiu-jitsu belts instead of the stripes. It's really tight. But I've had that rash guard for years now. And let me tell you something. It doesn't pill. The colors don't fade. The seams all look great. It looks like it's brand new. Even though I've worn it 100 times, I've washed it 200 times. This thing is great. And and let me tell you something. When you you go to adkfightwear.com and use our promo code right now, you can get that rash guard for as cheap as 20 bucks, and you're not going to find high-quality grappling gear out there for a lower price. So head on over there now. Check out their geese, spats, rash guards, t-shirts, whatever it is you need. ADKFightwear.com. ADK Fightwear brings you this episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it starts right now. This is Daniel Gumby Freeman with Top Turtle MMA on FlowCombat.com, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Gregor Gillespie, the number 12 ranked lightweight in the world and self-declared best fisherman in MMA. So, Gregor, I understand you're on your way to go fishing right now. It's been almost six months since you fought. How much fishing have you done in that time? I do as much training as I possibly can, and that's a year-round thing for me. Um, but I also squeeze in my fishing time. So I'm actually not on my way to fishing. I'm at the beach parking lot, and uh, I'm not sure how much you guys or the audience of this listen or uh, follows wrestling, but I'm actually going over to Nick Piccinini, who's the starter uh, for Oklahoma State um, Wrestling, obviously Division One Wrestling promoting Oklahoma State. And I'm going to his aunt's house up on the north shore of Long Island, and that's where I'm parked at right now and getting ready to go out to the beach and catch some fish. Awesome. So you're going to do a little fishing on the beach, but I imagine you're also going to do a little bit of wrestling training with him as well? Actually, Nikki is back in Oklahoma State right now, but I'm actually pretty close with their entire family, so I just give him a heads up. It's his aunt's house. So Nikki's actually in Okie State. Nikki's brother, Anthony uh, Piccinini, who actually does a lot of my media stuff for me. He's been putting up my uh, boxing videos and some of my fishing videos lately. Um, he's next step marketing. Um, but he is working right now, so couldn't meet me here. So I just shoot his aunt a text and say, hey, you care if I park in the driveway and fish out of your, basically, your backyard? No, no, fine. Come on over. It's good to go. So that's where we're at now. Awesome. And... and uh- Yes. Is most of the fishing you do off of the beach, too, or do you do some, some fishing on a boat? Do you try to do some deep-sea fishing? <laughs> okay, so it's kind of like this. I have my boat, and anyone who follows me on my Instagram page, uh, they can clearly see that I do a lot of fishing out of a boat. But if you see that, that means that I am upstate. So I don't think, so anyone who doesn't know me or follow that closely, um, my 
my growing up years and my family, every, everyone lives in Rochester, New York, specifically Webster, New York. Um, so every single one of my family members and, uh, you know, high school and close childhood friends still live in Webster, New York. So that's where my boat stays. It's freshwater. My brother literally lives, I would say, a half a mile from the boat launch to Rondequoit Bay, which is on Lake Ontario. So if you see me in my boat, that's where I'm upstate. I'm not on Long Island. So when I'm in Long Island, it's either uh, I'm wading, so I'm walking out into the waves, basically, uh, and casting from there, which is called surf casting. Uh, and that's what I really got into this spring and summer. My buddy Ken over at Field and Stream is uh, he's the big fishing head department or head of the fishing department over there. And he finally convinced me after eight years of living in Long Island to get into the salt water. And I have not fished a single day of fresh water since then when I've been in Long Island. Awesome. Uh, that's, that's really cool. Now, I, I got to ask yeah. you a question, too, because obviously, you know, I, I was a fisherman earlier in my life, too, yeah. when I lived closer to the beaches. Sure. And, and I know fishing culture includes a lot of barbecuing, beer, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Does, does, how do you avoid that, and how do you make sure that it doesn't affect your training? But I actually, I always make sure I'm done with my training before um, I hit the, you know, whatever I'm going to fish, wherever, you know, if I hit the beach or hit, my, you know, whatever. I always make sure I have my, like, I did my two training sessions literally already. I got up really early, did two today. If I were in camp, I would have done three, and I may not have fished at all. Um, but I, it doesn't interfere with it at all because uh, I get all my training done before, and then on top of that, I actually don't drink. And I'm very open to any questions you have about that. I don't drink, though. I literally I haven't drank in over nine years now, so that's, that's where we're at with that. And the other thing, too, is if I'm going to a barbecue, I typically ask if they're going to have, uh, you know, food that I would eat, or I drink my own food. So... That's kind of how that works. Yeah, that's that's definitely a way to make sure your diet stays on, yeah. on track. Now, yeah. I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the lightweight division, because I, I know you don't have a fight yeah. schedule, but there are some really exciting fights coming up in your division. The the first one being in Abu Dhabi, Habib is fighting yeah. Dustin Poirier for the title. How right. closely do you watch the top of your division, and how closely will you be watching that one? Man, and again, I think I mentioned to you guys earlier when we were arranging this interview, I don't really talk much about my division. I will answer this question, but as far as, like, my next fight coming up or who I'm eyeballing as far as a fight, I will not talk about that. That's just something that I don't do. So, But that fight, obviously that, you know, I know who they both are. I've watched some of their fights, but I don't really ever, like, oh, you know, I'm going to watch... I'm going to go watch uh, if, you know, Ferguson or Fountain Cowboy tonight. I wouldn't watch it. And I love Cowboy. I'm actually friends with Cowboy, but I wouldn't watch it. I'm just not a, you know, I always say to people, I don't watch my fights because I'm not a fan. I'm a participant. So if it's outside of my weight class, I'll watch it. Like tonight, I'm really excited to watch Edgar and uh, Holloway, but that's not my weight class. So I could be a fan of that. Once it's in your weight class, you can't be a fan. You have to, you have to be a participant or else your, your mission gets a little bit, uh, you know, off track. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, so you try to yeah. avoid watching it at all in, in training camp? Then well, I don't watch. I mean, I don't try to avoid. I do avoid. I don't watch my. I'll go and like I go over to my buddy Manny's house when I'm watching the fight. If a lightweight fight comes on, I go into the other room and I hang out with his wife and we talk. Or I don't watch it. I just, you know, I I just don't do it. Interesting. So when when you're um yeah. when you're in training camp then. Do you have a, yep. a coach who specifically watches lightweight fights for you, or is it a completely different yeah. thing when you're in training camp? They all do. So my coaches are Keith Trimble, Kyle Sermonera, and Joe Scarola, and they always watch the potential matchup. So if they, let's say they give us a guy, hey, would you want to fight this guy? They watch. I don't watch. I never, ever watch my opponent 
before I fight. I never watch an opponent when I'm deciding on who I might fight. It's just another one of those things I just don't do. Wow, that, that's so, but they all do. They all do for me. So like, so like, I would never like. Oh my God, this guy's got a great head kick. This guy's got a great heel kick. Whatever it is, I know sometimes along the way during training camp, like if Keith keeps having me block uppercuts, then I know this guy probably is not. But I don't watch them do it because then you get that like frame of mind where you're thinking, Oh my God, I gotta watch the uppercut. I gotta watch the uppercut. And you totally change, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously, you change how you're going to fight because you're worried about what they're going to do. And in fighting a wrestler, any combat sport, you need to impose your will. It's usually not a game of, I'll wait and see how it feels in play. No, that's not really, you're going to be the best, you just can't have that attitude. Interesting. And when you were you were wrestling in college, did, did you feel the same way yep. about that? Did you not watch people who were in the same weight class as you? No, I never did. I watched me. I watched what I, you know, if I won a match and I thought I did something well, I watched me. Does that make sense? So, like, you know, I envisioned myself hitting that, you know, knee pull or whatever, the double I shot on Slater, whatever it was. I watched it. I still do. Like, when I did a workout this morning, I watched my match against Justin Slater, and I watched the double. Like, it's, it's like a good feeling to watch yourself win. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, too. And it, it's, I got to imagine, too, it's better for your positive mindset, right? Because you're, you're focusing yeah. on what you do and not what others do. Right. Right, and everyone's a little different, so I'll elaborate on that a little bit. Like, so I also, you know, help out some kids in high school and some, uh, you know, some younger kids in wrestling. I don't train people in fighting. Wrestling is my love. It's what I'm best at, obviously. But if you think about it, like, everyone's a little different. But like, I remember in, you know, high school, you know, younger years of wrestling, when you were like, man, this guy wants to mix that up. He's, I heard him talking shit about you. That's not really, like, the best way to motivate someone. The best way, and everyone's different. But general consensus is the most important thing when heading into a wrestling match, a fight, a combat sports event, you need confidence. So, like, I can't be scared, like, oh, my God, this guy was talking about me and he wants to kill me and blah, blah. No, you have to get, I'm going to embarrass this guy. Obviously, take him seriously. He got to this point of the tournament or the division or whatever it is by beating people, so he's good. But you also can't have that mind frame that like, just a little scared or terrified. Some people, you know, you look at like, man, he's scared. And that's where you see the big difference in like, the practice guys versus the match or fight guys. So like, I call them gamers. So I have several guys that like, you watch them in practice and you're like, oh my God, this guy is really, I'm talking about wrestlers now. Oh my God, this guy's really good. And then you see him in a match, and you're like, what happened to the guy that was murdering everyone in practice, right? Well, they don't compete the same because they have that nervous energy. They, you know, there's a certain amount of, I call it, uh, <laughs> uh, I forget the term I call it, but, you know, like uh, pre-fight uh, nervous energy or performance anxiety. That's the term I'm looking for. There's a healthy amount of that. But there's some guys that are crippled by that. And you can tell watching them. You can tell by their body language before the match. You can tell, I mean... Pretty accurately, you know, oh, man, this guy's scared. And I'm not talking about scared of the other guy. I'm talking about scared of performing, scared of people watching, scared of, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So, yeah, and then you get other guys. Like, I have a kid named Jordan Titus. I think he's ranked sixth or seventh in the country right now in wrestling. But if you watch him in practice, I mean, he does well in practice. But, you know, he gives up points here and there, and he loses to some guys that maybe you'd expect him, being the sixth-ranked kid in the country, to not lose to, right? But... Then you watch him in a match, and it's like, he can't lose. You know what I mean? It's like, man, that's a different kind of, and I call those gamers. So, like, when the pressure's on, when the lights, when you get a win or loss on your record, the kid's damn near impossible to score on. Wow. 
Yeah, so I, um, I, I love that a lot. So now I, I do yeah. want to get you, let you get back to fishing because I know obviously. No, I mean I, I'm setting up my rods right now. Ask away. I got a couple minutes. Awesome, perfect. So um, yeah. My, I guess I'll I'll go with my final question here, being you know you're you're yeah. off heading off to fish right now. Uh, do you got any big yep. fishing plans for uh, the next couple of months? Do you have any trips planned or, or anywhere you're planning on going? We'll return to fishing here. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, so here's where we're at now. When I'm in Long Island, I, you know, I try to go home. Uh, you know, again, I don't have any family here. A lot of my younger, um, you know, younger childhood and high school friends still live there. So it's nice to go see them. But it's a hike. I don't fly if I'm going home because it's like a little too close to fly, but almost out of range to drive it's like six to seven hours depending on the traffic leaving long island so it's like man plus i you know if i want to work to like you know later in the day and then hop right in my car and drive i can it's just inconvenient to fly um so it's just anyways uh you know my plans are i will be going up and doing another uh salmon fishing trip on my boat in lake ontario i'm not totally sure when probably in the next you know within a couple weeks um but, yeah, that's my fishing plan. I don't have anything major planned, but I was actually interacting with some people that were commenting on my post that I just posted this morning. It was my last fishing trip last week. I was out with my buddy Johnny Manetta and my buddy Ringo. Um, and we were fishing. We caught huge lake trout, huge salmon, a couple smaller browns and rainbow trout. It was just a good day. But someone was interacting with me on my page, and they were saying, why don't you set up something where someone can win a trip with you to fish? So what I was thinking... I actually posted it in the comment section of my last fishing post. But maybe I'll do like some sort of like raffle or like an auction where all the proceeds go to something like, you know, cystic fibrosis or cerebral palsy or autism or something, you know what I mean? A good cause. Like, I don't need any money, uh, you know, taking someone out fishing, but it would be neat to kind of give the fans and the fishing people that also watch fighting a chance to come out and fish with me, you know? Well, so, well, we would, I mean, that's probably that's going to be something I do this summer for sure. Yeah, well, we will certainly be in support of it and sharing it all around social awesome. media. We we appreciate the time, yeah. Gregor, because I know of your course. time is very valuable. Once again, this is Gregor Gillespie, the number twelve ranked lightweight in the world and MMA's best fisherman. Thanks again for the time, Gregor. We really appreciate it. That's right. Awesome. Yep. Thanks for the call. This is Daniel Gumby, Freeland with Top Turtle MMA on FlowCombat.com, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to Liz Carmouche, who fights Valentina Shevchenko for the flyweight title at UFC in Uruguay on ESPN+. So, Liz, you were originally booked for a fight with Roxanne Matafari, which would have happened a couple of weeks ago before this fight was announced. How shocking was it to you when they came to you with this option when you already had a fight booked? I was really surprised, uh, not only because it seemed like the media got wind of it before I even did, <laughs> um, but also just because having already had a fight lined up and for them to just kind of uh, scratch that and move this up was to me a real surprise, but an opportunity I wasn't about to miss out on. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, that, that fight with, with Mataferi is, is a fun fight too, but at the same time, did you think that that fight was going to lead you to a title shot? Was that sort of your thinking behind that one? That was my hoping. Uh, since I entered into the 125 division, it's uh, been the constant rumor that each fight that I had was going to put me in contention for the belt. So I was hoping that a win over Roxanne would do that and that by the end of the year I'd be fighting the belt, if not early next year. Yeah, and obviously getting that shot at the belt is, is everybody's dream, but you, this is a dream that you get to kind of relive because, you know, you, you had that first shot, which was at the very dawn of, of women being in MMA. Not a lot of people get a second shot in the UFC. How important is this for your legacy? 
It's very important, uh, not only because it is another opportunity that I have. Uh, it's a new weight class and a weight class I feel more comfortable in. And it's an opportunity that took me six years to climb back up to that I'm not about to not capitalize on. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's a really good point, too. You mentioned that you're more comfortable in this weight class. It's also been six and a half years, you know, since UFC 157. How much different of a fighter are you both at this weight class and over that period of time? A very different fighter. Uh, having six years ago, I was still had a lot to learn. I think when I fought Ronda, I was maybe a purple belt in jiu-jitsu, a blue belt purple belt in jiu-jitsu, and still getting uh, figuring out what I was comfortable with. And when you're that inexperienced, you're still you don't know what your comfort levels are, what your strong suits. You're still figuring out what jiu-jitsu is, let alone what your strengths and weaknesses are. And now I've had a lot more time to to figure that out, striking wise. It was the same thing. There were a lot of things that I was still learning about myself that I didn't feel comfortable with. I didn't know how to navigate through. And I've, I've adapted a lot as a fighter. And then at 125, I feel healthier, faster, and stronger than I ever did at 135. So when you factor in the growth and the knowledge of my myself and my abilities and then add on that I'm in the correct weight class, it just makes that much better for a fighter. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned that you've been able to grow and you've been able to learn about yourself. Obviously, some of that comes from the gym. Some of that comes from past fights. How much do you feel that that first title fight helped you grow as a fighter? Oh, it helped substantially. The stress that, that I went through in having to do all the media outlets and trying to schedule in my day and my training and my, my work and school and everything, how to also factor in that I had to do media time every day and a lot at minimum two hours to do interviews and go to radio stations and try and figure all that in and being able to do that it's so young in my fight career and the stress that, that it went through helped me prepare for any other fight and anything else that the UFC could possibly ask and demands that they have so anything since then has seemed like a breeze in comparison so that's helped so much because being able to enter into UFC and having it be such a big deal and there be so much dependence on not only my fight performance but my media performance that just helped me in every way that I could possibly for any fight coming after that. And obviously, like you said, it's a, it's a great learning experience, and it's important in that aspect. Was there anything from that, that week that you wish you could have gone back and changed? Obviously, you know, the result of the fight. But is there anything you could go back, prepare differently, you know, answer questions differently, change your time around differently? Yeah, I, I wish that I knew then. I mean, we can always we say we look back, and then hindsight is always 50-50, and you always look back and you realize, things that you could have done differently. I didn't take care of myself as a fighter. Recovery, I just didn't understand the things that I know now. And the benefits that I have is that I, I've learned lessons the hard way. And I always have to seem to, to do it the hardest way possible to get to the top. And I wish that the things that I knew on how to take care of my body, I had done then because I think that would have aided so much more in my fight against Ronda. Absolutely. Now, and I'm glad we're talking about, you know, things we've learned in the past and how we've gained from the past because – it's fitting for this title fight that this title fight is a rematch. A lot of people forgetting that you fought and beat Valentina Shevchenko when you were only 4-0 as a pro, you know, nearly nine years ago. Is there anything that you look back at from that fight and take away as you head into a title fight with her, you know, almost a decade later? Uh, in that, no. I, I definitely don't take anything away from it just because I was such a, a baby fighter then. And I really was still learning I was still just learning how to train <laughs> I was going to school full-time and just juggling uh, my entire life and at that point I wasn't even sure if fighting was something I was meant to do and if it was something that I was going to pursue 
head on with everything that I had. It wasn't until a few fights after that that I, I came to that decision. And so really to, to address the fighter that I was, I, I, I just scratched that fight and just going to do 135 when I was still so new and inexperienced that it just doesn't count to anything except to possibly have a psychological advantage over her and that she's thinking about that loss and wanting to come back from it. Do you think she is thinking about that loss? Do you think she is fixating on, you know, getting one of her losses back? I think so. I think for a lot of people, because there isn't any footage. We were in, it was such a shady organization out in the middle of nowhere in weird circumstances that there isn't any footage for either of us to have studied to learn from our mistakes. And I think for her, she'd like to show that she's done much better than, than she had. And then while it might have been a loss that she was doing well, and to not be able to show people that I think does weigh on her. Mm. Well, it's interesting, you know, and I gotta ask now because I love a good shady early promotions question. Uh, you know, ten <laughs> ten years ago, you said it was some shady stuff. What, what was the shady stuff uh, about this early promotion? Uh, oh, the big one being is I wasn't supposed to fight Valentina. I was supposed to fight her sister. Oh, I signed a contract. Yeah, I signed a contract to fight her sister because her sister and I uh, were similar in their experience. She had a little bit more experience than I did but not like Valentina, who had 10 years of Muay Thai prior to even getting involved in MMA. Her sister had a few boxing, a few Muay Thai, but nothing extensive like Valentina. And that's what we agreed to and signed a contract and fight posters to. I get to the venue. We look, and there's a new fight poster, and it's Valentina, not her sister. We're like, uh, excuse me, uh, this isn't right. And they tried to pull one over on us. Um, they didn't pay correctly. Like there was a, They said to make up for the fact that I was willing to fight Valentina, not fight her sister. They'd reimburse me and give me per diem and then food and stuff. They didn't do any of that. And uh, even when we got out to the venue, it was cold. It wasn't very well lit. It was off in the middle of nowhere. It was just very shady. There wasn't really even a medical team. And I think even the blood work, all they did was just test for HIV, which just was not a good fight organization. Oof. Yeah, that, that is a, that's a good shady early uh, promotion story right there. No, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I got to ask you, too. So, you know, you mentioned Valentina. You, you mentioned Antonina. Both of them have been, like, rising up the ranks pretty quickly. Knowing that you had this win over, have you kept an extra eye on, on her career over the course? Like, do you keep an eye on people who you've had run-ins with earlier? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I definitely follow everybody who's in either contention for the belt or holding the belt to see potentially who I'm always gunning for and, and what it is I need to work on as far as my fight game, the things they do incorrectly and incorrectly. So I've certainly seen her in that aspect. Uh, but after our fight, she kind of fell off the radar for a little bit. So I thought that uh, she was going to be done with MMA and go back into Muay Thai. And then before I know it, she pops back this up in the UFC as a surprise to me. And that's really when I started following her career again. That's, well, yeah, and she she did sort of take it by, you know, all, all by surprise in, in the way that she rose up the rankings. Now, uh, we're just about to the end of this interview. I've kept you for a little longer than I said I was going to. I do want to ask, do you have a prediction on how you expect this to go down? Uh, yes and no. I certainly see it going down with my hands in the air, the belt around my waist. Uh, all the possibilities I've played out in my head. I don't like to restrict myself to thinking, oh, it's going to be uh, a TKO again. Oh, it's going to be a knockout or it's going to be this. Because I feel like that restricts people. And then when they don't win in that way, it kind of breaks their bubble and helps them. It has them perform the way that they wouldn't. Whereas if they go in open-minded and just look for every opportunity that opens up, they do a lot better, and that's how I'm looking at it. Is I've, I've played out every scenario, and it always is with my hands there. 
Well, whatever scenario that is, we're looking forward to it. Once again, this is Liz Carmouche, who fights Valentina Shevchenko for the UFC Women's Flyweight title at UFC in Uruguay on ESPN+. Liz, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And those interviews with Gregor Gillespie and Liz Carmouche are brought to you by Maroon Social. Look, Maroon Social started out as just an app where you could track your BJJ progress. And they continue to make amazing updates in all kinds of ways to their app. Because now, not only can you tag friends and check in on what they're doing, can you log your competitions and things like that, but now also you can track whatever kind of martial arts training you're doing. That's right, if you're boxing... They've got you. You're doing judo, they got you. Sambo, they got you. Wing Chun, they got you. That's right. No matter what you're trying to get better at, Maroon Social helps you log your training sessions so that you can make sure that you're making the progress you want, and it allows you to take notes, log competitions, all kinds of other features. Make sure to check them out on whatever app store you use, Maroon Social. Now, back to the show. I'm Daniel Gumby-Vreeland, joined as always by Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, what did you think about what Gillespie said about not watching 155ers? Back-to-back great interviews this week, starting with Gillespie. Yeah, I mean, I, I really respect his line of thinking to not watch, not let his uh, you know, perceived plans, what he thinks the other fighter might do, affect how he's going to go about his business. It's basically saying like he's going to dictate where the fight goes and not let anything interfere with that. I really respect it. Yeah, and it's definitely worked so far, right? Like, you can't knock the the idea. He has gone out there in every single one of his UFC fights and completely imposed his will. So, clearly, it's working for him. We should probably talk about that whole uh, weird, almost (laughs) pro-wrestling-like Shevchenko sister swap that Liz Carmouche had to deal with. How crazy was that? That is, that is not, that's nuts for a couple of reasons. Number one is it's like super shady for a promotion, no matter how many fights somebody has to pull that. The other thing is, is that the Shevchenko sisters could not look less alike. It's not like they tried to like pull the wool over their eyes. They don't look alike. So like... They clearly were just doing it out in the broad open. Yeah, um, it just super reminds me of pro wrestling when they were two doink the clowns and uh, <laughs> they would just swap them when it was convenient for them. Gumby, we had a jam-packed weekend. I want to get to our favorite segment on the show. Well, at least tied for our favorite segment. It's the fastest fight news. We deliver the news to you in under 15 minutes or less, or your podcast is free. Hey, you people are busy. You don't have time to spend listening to hour-long MMA podcasts. We're trying to be quick for you. Zippy. It's a go-go world. And let's go with this. Colby Covington was absolutely dominant this past weekend over Robbie Lawler. The output of punches, his cardio, you know, sometimes the UFC doesn't know what fight to make. It is so clear he deserves the next shot against Champ Kamara Usman and making it all the more special. These guys kind of have similar fight games, do they not? Yeah, they they do. I I think the wrestling game is very similar. I I think... Usman has definitely got more of a power game with his hands versus like a, you know, just like a pure output. Like Colby's not going to put anybody away with his hands, but he could definitely win a decision with them. I was wondering just from your standpoint, after watching that fight, do you have more confidence or less confidence that Colby Covington could beat Kamar Usman? I, I actually, it's a great question because going into the weekend, I had, I was confident that Usman would be the favorite, which he is. I think I saw him somewhere around like a minus 150. Is that what you've seen so yeah, far? Yeah, right about there. Yeah, right about there, minus 150. And that sounds about right. You get Colby as like a plus two dog. 
but I got to say, I guess to answer your question, maybe I'm a little closer to picking Covington because I just don't know. I think it's going to go to a decision. I think each of them could steal a round or two, and we might be looking at one of these fights that goes into the fifth round as a toss-up. Yeah, the only thing that stuck out to me, so I wound up feeling better about Usman winning after the fight, and the thing that stuck out to me is after, like, I would say one minute into the third round, Colby couldn't get a takedown anymore. It was impossible. Mm. Robbie was stuffing everything he had about 11 minutes into the fight, and to me... That's troublesome, because if you look at what Usman did to Tyrone Woodley, who is probably harder to take down than Robbie Waller, if I'm not, 100%. Out, of, not out of line in saying that, he was taking him down nonstop for 25 minutes. And he was doing so without making it look hard either. So for me, I feel like as the fight goes on, Colby will have a single dimension. And as the fight goes on, Usman retains all of his dimensions. And, and for that, I think Usman could possibly stop him late, and if not, he's going to win most of the late rounds. Well, speaking of dimensions and someone who maybe comes from a different dimension, uh, Cyborg was released. She is not going to renew her contract with the UFC, although I guess she hasn't signed anywhere else, so anything really is possible up until that point. But all signs pointing to her being gone from the UFC. She did apologize to Dana White because her social media team did some funky editing to make it seem like he said something he didn't say. But point being, Dana hasn't really treated her with the utmost respect. Um, what do you make of Cyborg leaving the UFC and what's her legacy uh, now that she's gone. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of saw it coming. We talked about this a couple of weeks in a row about how we thought she was going to leave. I, I especially thought the writing was on the wall when she said that she was not going to sign back without Dana White apologizing to her. Like, that's never going to happen, right? Like, Dana White is not going to apologize to anybody. And, and I think what they did with his her contract, letting it expire while she fought somebody like Felicia Spencer, was intentionally there so that they could lowball her on an offer if it did ever get to a negotiation table. Uh, ultimately, what do I think of her legacy? I mean, like, her legacy was she was one of the best 145ers out, but I, I have just, like, a tough time having thinking about people getting hyped for her fights again, knowing that she has that loss to Amanda Nunes, right? Like, are you going to can't miss half the tune into her fight, Julia Budd? No, probably no. not, right? So, I mean, like, it, it's obviously tainted a little bit without that rematch. Uh, well, here's something that people can get excited for, even if, you know, this might point to the death of the 145 division once Amanda potentially loses that belt, or maybe they're just going to fill it out and kind of be real, you know, mean to Cyborg and do what they should have done for her. Um, but now they'll do for noons. Time will tell on that, but here's a fight we can all sink our teeth into and look forward to because these two guys are on the UFC roster still, and that's Corey Anderson versus Johnny Walker. It's going to take place in MSG later this year, and that is a big fight in the 205-pound division, which, you know, Jones has run through two new contenders this year already in Anthony Smith uh, and Dominic Reyes, so, or excuse me, Tiago Santos. So this fight uh, really takes on title implications, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, it's a smart piece of matchmaking for two reasons. Number one is if Johnny Walker wins, it gives him a quick jump up the division, right? Corey Anderson's already top 10. It makes sense to give him a top 10 guy so he can jump up real quick. And 
The other thing is, is that if Corey Anderson does happen to win, it sort of legitimizes him. Not that he needs to be legitimized, but a win over somebody who's got as much hype behind him as Johnny Walker makes him a legitimate title challenger, not just on paper, but also in the public's eye. Um, speaking of the public's eye, it has now come to the attention, uh, due to the antitrust lawsuit against the UFC, uh, a lot of things are coming to light in that litigation, uh, and it has come to light, and this is pretty crazy, that Leota Machida had a secret bounty agreement. This was not disclosed through the Nevada State Athletic Commission. It was not the... I guess you could call it official fight of the night or performance bonus. It was just between him and the UFC that if he were to stop anyone, uh, the dragon would pick up a cool hundred K on top of whatever else he was earning that night. What do you make of this? Uh, I mean, like this is like sort of a, a glimpse into those like locker room bonuses that Dana always bragged were there. It's sort of interesting to me because Loyola Machida is the perfect person to put one of these on, right? He's a guy who at times used his karate style to fight a tad tentative, right? Like, it, that, that's fair to say in some of his fights. In, and then some fights he had that, like, crazy killer instinct. It almost makes me wonder which of his fights those were on. Because, like, were those on, was that on the Ryan Bader fight when he absolutely demolished him? Was it on the Randy Couture fight when he threw the crane kick? Like... I'm curious if they were on all of them or just some of them. It's definitely interesting. I I wish I knew more, though. Uh, It also came to light that, I guess, Lesnar had, I mean, and this really, you know, Bloody Elbow did a phenomenal job, hat tips, and I'm breaking this all down, but that Lesnar, his pay was obviously way more than was ever disclosed. But I think everyone kind of knew that, Mm -hmm. that, you know, a lot of stuff was not disclosed. They paid him through uh, his LLC Death Clutch, uh, which was a clothing label that I guess he created and sort of semi-sponsored him. Um, So some money would go to him, some money would go to Death Clutch. Uh, I don't necessarily know that I find this to be that surprising, but it did come to light this week. Yeah, I don't think it's surprising. I just wish I knew, like, we knew some money was changing hands. I just wish I knew how much and how many different people Oh, well, yeah, and I'm sure every manager wants to know this as well, and yeah. it kind of changes the negotiation game going forward. Uh, speaking of changing the game going forward, former champion and someone with a win over Brock Lesnar, Kane Velasquez made his pro wrestling debut this past weekend uh, in Lucha Libre Wrestling, and he looked phenomenal. I didn't even know Kane had it in him to be that athletic. Yeah, that was crazy. So I- I'm not a huge pro wrestling guy, but when you watch that quick highlight, and, and it's just like a 30-second highlight or something like that, the movement looks smooth. It looks like he's been doing it his whole life. He's clearly dedicated himself to this craft, which, of course, begs the question, do we ever see him in a cage again? That is that is the question, and one would kind of think, you know, maybe he feels his earning potential is just better in wrestling. Mm-hmm. I know he's had some loose contact with WWE, but if he were to get a contract with them... Um, you know, I mean, he, he'd probably make more in a year with them than he would in the UFC at this point. Absolutely. So, I don't know. Interesting stuff. Speaking of interesting stuff, we have a new game we want to play here. Uh, it's going to be our MMA over-unders for the month of August. So, basic premise here is we each came up with a couple of over-unders. 
We'll test each other on that. You can play along at home. You can, of course, hit us up on our Twitter, at TopTurtleMMA. Let us know what you thought of this game, if you loved it, if you hate it. We accept both love and hate feedback. But one might wonder, before we get to our over-under game, Gumby, does any fine company sponsor said game? Absolutely. The MMA over-under game is brought to you by Sisu Mouthguards. Head to SISUGuard.com for the only mouthguard where you can talk, breathe, and drink. All with that mouth guard up in your mouth. It is truly a feat of science because let me tell you something. Small perforations in the mouth guard make it so that you don't have to keep handling your mouth guard in order to take a drink or to talk to a training partner. Instead, you can just leave it in there, say what you need to say, get a quick drink, and get back into whatever physical activity you do. Make sure you use promo code TOPTURTLE15 for 15% off all your mouth guard purchases. I never roll at jiu-jitsu. I never go into any type of athletic competition. I don't even record podcasts without my CC mouth guard in my mouth. I like to protect my chompers at all times. Gumby, we'll go back and forth on this. I'm going to start with you. Uh, and just to give another uh, brief background, we're doing over-unders about fighters who fought in the month of August. Just adding a little color to your UFC viewing pleasure this month getting us excited about some of these fights. So I had no better place to start than the fight I'm most looking forward to the rest of the month, and that's the rematch of Daniel Cormier versus Stipe Miocic. So this over-under is about the champ, Daniel Cormier. Uh, He, of course, fights Stipe next weekend at UFC 241. And here's the uh, criteria, Gumby, or here's what we're going to decide, or you're going to decide, I should say. Daniel Cormier has 10 UFC wins in his career. I repeat, 10 wins. Mm-hmm. I would like you to answer for me, Gumby. Over, under, six and a half, how many finishes does Cormier have for wins? Over, so I'll repeat that. Over, under, over, six, under six and a half finishes in the UFC. Mm-hmm. And I've already told you that he has 10 total wins. Are you going over or are you going under six and a half? So let me reason this out a little bit. So I, I remember sure. at heavyweight, I think he decisioned Frank Mir. So mm. that's one decision. Did he also decision? I'm not going to tell you if you're right or wrong on that. But mm. yeah. Did he also decision? Did he fight? Oh, no, that was in a different promotion. Never mind. That's strike force. Yes, I did not. I was thinking Josh strike. Barnett, yeah, which is a decision as well. Or at least I think it was. God, but you could say maybe that points. Um, well, maybe that you could say that points to his pedigree of decision wins. Yeah, I'm, but I'm gonna, continue. I'm gonna say under six and a half finishes. You go under six and a half. Final yes. answer. Final answer. It's over, oh, and isn't man. that surprising? That is crazy. Daniel Cormier finishes at a seventy percent clip Damn. of his UFC wins. So here's question B. That being A, or sub-question B, uh, over under, I'll just say, over 50% of those wins, submission. So, over is 50%. Okay. Or, sorry, over under. He has seven finishes, so does he have more subs or more chaos? Does he have four or more? I'm going to say submissions. Correct. I'm going to say he has more submissions. Yeah, four submissions. Okay. A lot of rear naked chokes in the mix. Did it twice to Anthony Rumble Johnson. Oh, of course, yeah. just got Derek Brunson. So there that you go. Sense. All right, you're, yours to me. Okay, so I, I'm I'm one for two there. That's not too bad. So I'm going to give you one from this past weekend. 
So you just watched mm. Colby Covington versus Robbie Lawler and got to see the insane output of Colby Covington. Now, here's my question to you. Colby Covington looked like an absolute machine throwing strikes. Over under 377 is the number. Significant strikes thrown by Colby Covington. 377 in a five-round fight. I know he set some kind of record, and I, like, this is tough. It's up there. I mean, I want to say it's in the 300s. Is it over 377? I don't know why, like, 320 is sticking out to me or something like that. I feel like it's in the lower 300s. So, again, just talking about it out loud, I'm going to go under, but I do think it's a high number in the threes. What is it? You are wrong. The correct number is 515 significant strikes thrown by Colby Covington. He was averaging over 100 strikes around? strikes around thrown. And that's just significant. That's not overall strikes thrown, according to uh, this is I don't know. To fight metric, obviously. Does Damian Maya have over 100 strikes thrown in his <laughs> career? That's insane. I'm I'm not positive um, he does. And if he does, it's against Colby Covington. <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, all right. So, I actually looked up a Colby Covington stat, <laughs> and I'll just give it to you right now. Um, it was one I had in my back pocket, but it's on theme, so let's keep going with it because we do need to celebrate what a tremendous win that was. So, Colby Covington has 10 UFC wins. He's 10-1 and one in the UFC his one loss being to Warley Alves. Um, I'm going to ask you, Gumby, over under 1.5 times that Colby has outstruck his opponents. Over so I will repeat, 1.5. how many times has Colby Covington outstruck his opponents? Are we landed, counting Robbie Lawler? We're counting Robbie Lawler. Oh. So obviously, I'll and I Robbie. set it at one point five. God damn it! So you're asking me, has he outstruck anybody but Robbie? Basically, I'm gonna say over. I'm gonna say he outstruck at least one more person. Um, he has outstruck all of his opponents but one. Oh shit! Really? Yeah, the only person damn. to outstrike him was Rafael Dos Anjos. That's crazy. Yeah, his output is insane and really has been his whole career. And actually, it's worth noting in the Warley Alves loss, which was by a submission, they were 2-2 two to two yeah, that, heading into that, that submission. That one doesn't really count, yeah. All right, so, All right. so what am I, one for, one for two? Yeah, call it one for two. Okay, so uh, next one. So I, I'm going to go back to that Newark card because it was interesting to me. Clay Guida gets submitted. He gets put out absolutely cold by Jim Miller. Clay Guida submission losses in his career. Over and under seven and a half times he's been submitted. And when you say career, are we taking into account outside the UFC? Outside the UFC as well. Yep. So I don't know it off the top of my head. I don't know it off the top of my head, so I'm just talking about this out loud. When it happened, and that was a nasty guillotine by Jim Miller, made all the more cooler by the fact that Guido went out, I did look up, because I wanted to see. I thought, has anyone ever submitted Guido before? And I saw he actually had another loss or two 
uh, a loss or three, I should say, actually, to the guillotine. So I thought to myself, oh, my God, I mean, this is a guy who just hasn't worked on his jiu-jitsu defense, I guess. You would think by his 35th or so UFC fight, he's had a crazy amount of fights, it, it would have been better. So just based on that fact, and I don't know the number, I'm going to go over just because I didn't like what I saw from already having, like, three guillotine losses on the record you are a hundred percent right because clay guida has been submitted 10 times in his career uh including now his last two because he also got beat by guillotine by charles Oliveira uh semi-recently too so yep you are correct on that you are also one for two all right uh, Jessica Andrade uh, defends her belt at the end of the month at UFC on ESPN uh, Plus, uh, which will be the 15th ESPN Plus card, I guess, actually. Um, she has 11 wins in the UFC Gumby, does Jessica Andrade. And my question to you, she has, on occasion, more than doubled, uh, outstruck her opponent. So just you know, roundabout math, her opponent, uh, through 10 strikes, Jessica Andrade through 20 okay. so or 21, let's say more than doubled. She's done that a couple of times, but I'm going to put the over under at four. So in her 10 wins, 11 wins, excuse me. How many times has she doubled the output of her opponent? I'll say she over four times doubled up her opponent's. You are 100% right. She's done it five times. That's so badass. It's not surprising, too, because she is an absolute machine. I mean, like, Rose Namajunas, she probably didn't do it to, but, like, Rose is also, like, a crazy output person. So so that's not surprising that, that she's done it to so many. Um, to Rose, yeah, they didn't really get too far enough into her fight. Yeah. Andrade, well, I actually, I... It was Rose was uh, at 55 to Andrade 47 heading into the the KO loss. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. All right, so my third here. Um, We're going to go with Liz Carmouche. Uh, Liz Carmouche fights this weekend for the title. She's an underdog against uh, Valentina Shevchenko, which we'll talk about in just a bit. In her career, how many of her fights have been against women who have held a UFC title, either before they fought her or after they fought her, how many of them were to former or or um, future champions? The over-under number is set at four and a half. Well, I'll just talk about it out loud. She, of course, kicked off the 135-pound division against Ronda Rousey, so that's one right there. Um, I have to be honest, I... I like Liz Carmouche. I have not a thousand percent followed her career fight to fight. I want to say she also fought Misha Tate. And I want to say she never fought Holly. And did she fight Amanda Nunes? That would give her three. And just to clarify, it's just people who were at one point a champion, not like her actually challenging for a title champion at the time. Correct. Well, you know, there wasn't a ton of depth at 135. I'm just going to go ahead on a limb. I don't think she ever fought Holly Holm. Could be wrong. But I think it's fair to think in those early 2013, 2014, 15-ish years, she brushed paths with Nunes and Tate. What was the over-under? Four and a half. And I think she just went against Joanna. 
So, did she ever fight Rose? Mm. Oh, excuse me. Actually, she's fighting for 125, isn't she? Yeah, and she used to be a 35, obviously, fighting Ronda. Right. Okay, so never mind. She never fought either of those 115ers. I'm going to say she just missed it. I'm going to say she fought four and just misses the four and a half. You uh, are correct. She has fought four. You were a little bit wrong on the fighters, though. So she did never fight Nunez. She did fight Misha Tate and Ronda Rousey, both of which she lost to. You're forgetting that she fought Valentina Shevchenko, which we talked about early on the show. Oh, at 135. Yeah, the old Shevchenko switch on the regional circuit. And she also fought and beat Jessica Andrade at uh, 135 pounds when Jessica Andrade was up there. And she won by TKO, too. Wow. Well, that wraps up our... And and she's going to get five this weekend. That wraps up our over-under game. Hit us up on Twitter, FFTurtleMMA. Let us know if you liked it. Hopefully we uh, added a little flavor to some of these fighters fighting this month, uh, just celebrating their careers. Gumby, we do have a UFC this coming weekend, and I would like us to get to our UFC breakdown, but I just kind of wonder, does anyone bring this UFC breakdown to the fans? And this UFC Uruguay breakdown is brought to you by Sheath Underwear. Head to sheathunderwear.com, make sure you use promo code flow to get 20% off all your underwear needs and let me tell you something this underwear is truly changing the underwear game because it's not boxers it's not briefs it's got an innovative front pocket that allows you to feel safe and secure while also promoting airflow you get the best of the boxer world you get the best of the breeze world without boxer briefs it's not the same thing check them out sheathunderwear.com now for the fights here uh, we always like picking the, the person who is on the show, but I'm going with Valentina Shevchenko over Liz Carmouche here. The odds are astronomical, though. Last I checked, uh, Valentina Shevchenko betting off at negative 1,000 to Liz Carmouche at plus 850. I might take a runner at Liz Carmouche at plus 850 because that is an insane price for this fight. Um, but at the same time, if I have to pick straight up, I'm picking Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, in the Coleman event, I'm taking Vincente Luque over Mike Perry. Uh, Luque betting off at negative 220. I think that's a safe play right there. Perry goes in and bangs, and, and Luque has proven that he's better at that than, than Perry is. Uh, and in the third fight we're looking at, I like Ilo Latifi over Vulcan Ozdemir. Uh, Latifi betting off at a plus 125 underdog, and I think it's a good price for him here because when you look at Vulcan Ozdemir lately, the dude has fought high-level competition, but he has dropped three in a row. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at Latifi... He's like a a flying knee from Ryan Bader away from, like, being in a really good position in this division. So, uh, I like Latifi here with the upset. I think he's got the hands, and and I think he could probably wrestle him up a little bit, too. So, uh, for a quick recap, we're taking Shevchenko over Carmouche, Luque over Perry, and Latifi over Ozdemir. And uh, that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA. We want to thank our sponsors, Sisu Mouthguards, ADK Fightwear, Sheath Underwear, and Maroon Social. Make sure to download the Maroon Social app. We also want to thank Flow Combat for having us on each and every week. We wouldn't do what we do without them. Plus, we want to remind you guys to check out our Twitter, at Top Turtle MMA, for all kinds of good tidbits, uh, trivia pieces, sometimes some contests and giveaways. So keep an eye out for those. And... I'm Daniel Gumby-Ruined, he is Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will see you next week.